Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. Hello, folks. Welcome to Lost or Found. Today, I'll be speaking to Dr. Barry Armstrong, who is a pediatrician here in California, about his past and his own healing in his life. Working in the office setting and seeing the hordes of people coming in, I would wonder how stress or how that person was emotionally feeling could not be affecting how that person was physically feeling. How is your mind not connected to the rest of your body? Why wouldn't your body function as a team if it's a package deal and you are born in your body? If you are feeling stressed for weeks or months, your neck and shoulders are already feeling tense, your head feels like it's ready to explode. Maybe your heart's been beating faster, or you've gotten to the point where you are feeling chest pain. How does this create a nice environment for the rest of your body, your heart, your lungs, your gut, your adrenals, your muscles, and your joints? We are perhaps more merciful to an inanimate teapot than we are to ourselves. When the teapot is boiling, throttling, the steam is coming out and whistling, we respond to it and turn the heat off. I feel that depression and anxiety are in the same category as stress, as they are both stresses. But the problem with depression is oftentimes people can be unaware, for a lot of people mental health issues are still taboo. Seriously, when was the last time you talked about your depression in public? And for others who have acknowledged that they are experiencing mental health issues, a lot don't do anything about it. Chronic depression causes psychosomatic symptoms. What the hell is that? The term psychosomatic refers to real physical symptoms that come from the mind and are caused by emotions rather than a specific organ cause in the body. A psychosomatic illness is caused from emotional stress and manifests in the body as physical pain and many other symptoms. And anxiety? I think a healthy amount is good for everyone. For instance, if you are in a bad, sketchy environment, having the feeling of fear and apprehension of what's to come in the dark alleyway would be a good thing so you get the hell out of there. However, when one feels high levels of anxiety and it doesn't go away, it can be defined as a medical disorder. Anxiety disorders form a category of mental health diagnoses that lead to excessive nervousness, fear, apprehension, and worry. This is the example of anxiety stress on the body. When you feel bad enough that your heart rate runs 110 to 120 at rest, when normally it's 60 to 90, your heart is working harder, and perhaps the rest of your body may be working harder. Even a race car needs a rest and doesn't constantly drive at 200 miles per hour. A car drives this fast for a short period of time and then needs a period of rest and repair. How does this not correlate with our own bodies? And this is my question to you. Aren't our bodies, our health and lives, more important than a car? Dr. Bernie Siegel is a surgeon who wrote Love, Medicine, and Miracles, originally published in 1984, is one of the doctors who raised awareness on the mind-body link and felt that the mind and body are not separate units but one integrated system. His book talks about the power of the mind in overcoming disease. He personally felt that we have a biological live or die mechanisms within us. 
Based on scientific research and his own clinical experience, he was convinced that the state of the mind changes the state of the body by working through the nervous system, the endocrine system, and the immune system. Peace of mind sends the body a live message, while depression, fear, and unresolved conflict give it a die message. He started a group called Exceptional Cancer Patients to help mobilize their full resources against their disease, where they refuse to be victims. They educate themselves and become specialists in their own care. He refers to Carl Simonton's quote, In the face of uncertainty, there is nothing wrong with hope. The concept that hope is not statistical, but it's physiological, meaning there is true impact. If 9 out of 10 people are expected to die from a disease, that everyone has a chance to be the one that survives, because hope is real and may be more powerful than you can ever imagine. He states that even if what you most hope for, a complete cure, doesn't come to pass, the hope itself can sustain you to accomplish many things in the meantime. Refusal to hope is nothing more than the decision to die. Dr. Lisa Rankin, an OBGYN doctor, wrote Mind Over Medicine, written almost 30 years after Dr. Siegel's book, talks about how our minds can make us sick and it can also make us healthy. I have to honestly say, I had tears in my eyes reading this book, because not only does she describe her own struggles with our broken healthcare system, but also things that I wondered about as a doctor when meeting so many people with medical issues, as she talks about how we can actually all really live better and perhaps be healthier. She asks, what if you have the power to heal your body just by changing how your mind thinks and feels? She brings up the possibility of thinking a little differently for your own benefit, that you have more power to heal your own body than you've ever imagined, lobbing the responsibility for health back into your court. It's much easier to hand over your power and hope someone smarter, wiser, and more experienced can fix you. But what if we've got it all wrong? What if by denying the fact that the body is naturally wired to heal itself and the mind operates a self-healing system, we're actually sabotaging ourselves? See, isn't she a total badass? Doctors know that spontaneous, unexplainable remission sometimes can happen, and oftentimes doctors cannot explain the remission. As Dr. Siegel wrote, one problem with cancer statistics is that most self-induced cures don't get into medical literature. Dr. Rankin describes herself as a scientist by training and a skeptic by nature, and her book is so interesting as she chronicles her journey of discovery and shares the scientific data to support the possibility that patients have some control over healing their bodies. The truth about medicine is that there are things that we, even as doctors, cannot explain. Perhaps that is the power of humanity. Dr. Rankin talks about Harvard professor Anne Harrington's mind-body medicine history book, The Cure Within. And sometimes when bodies don't respond the way you would think, the only way we can explain these mysteries may be through the power of the mind. She writes, as examples of bodies behaving badly, Harrington tells stories of children living in institutional settings whose material needs were all met, but who would end up developmentally and mentally stunted because they were improperly loved. She also cites 200 cases of blindness in the group of Cambodian women forced by the Khmer Rouge to witness the torture and the slaughter of their loved ones. Although medical examination could find nothing wrong with the eyes of these women, they claimed to have cried until they could not see. And just between you and me, folks, just crying doesn't normally make one blind. 
all doctors know about the placebo effect. For centuries, doctors prescribed treatments without any clinical proof that the treatments actually worked. Dr. Rankin states that it wasn't until late in the 19th century that the idea of using placebos in clinical research began to emerge. Then in 1955, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a seminal article by Dr. Henry Beecher called The Powerful Placebo, which made the case that if you gave people drugs, many got better. But if you gave them plain salt water or some inert ingredient, about a third of them were also cured, not only in their minds, but in real physiological ways that could be demonstrated in the body. The effect of the placebo is a mainstay of modern medicine, where scientific studies try to prove the healing effect of the drug or specific treatment to be better than the power of the placebo. But for some people, there is the effect of the placebo. They get better in clinical trials because they believe that they are getting the treatment, bringing up the notion of the power of the mind, and as Dr. Rankin describes, the body's innate capacity for self-repair. Physiological stress has been generally known to predispose the body to illness, while physiological relaxation is what is needed for the body's self-repair mechanisms to operate correctly. In the 1920s, Dr. Walter Cannon, who was a Harvard professor, had coined the term the fight-or-flight response, a survival mechanism when you perceive a threat. In response to something really bad, which your mind perceives as an acute stress, the sympathetic nervous system is activated, which stimulates the adrenal glands, triggering the release of catecholamines such as adrenaline and cortisol. No one's supposed to actually live in the sympathetic nervous system state. This response happens so you survive a moment. However, according to Dr. Rankin, if one continues to be in this state and the stress hormones are rampant in your body, it can predispose your body to illness over time. It's in the relaxed state when the stress hormones drop that the parasympathetic nervous system takes over that the body can use its energy to heal itself. It's in the relaxed state that the body can return to homeostasis, also known as a stable equilibrium. I think in order to really embrace not only our health but also our lives, it starts with being honest with ourselves and how we really feel. It's a difficult task because I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I also think about denial as well as it's the easier answer. But ultimately, it's not going to help you or me. It takes courage to be honest. It takes courage to see. It takes courage to be less afraid or to hope for something better. It takes courage to try and perhaps stop the self-abuse. Everything is a choice. Taking care of ourselves is a choice. Eating healthy food and exercising daily while drinking six beers a day and thinking shitty thoughts is a choice. Why are you drinking like that? What are you masking? If you are going to do something, why not go all the way? Why don't you deserve happiness? Why don't you deserve mercy? Why do you treat yourself as you're not worthy? Because the truth is, whether or not you give 10% of your income to the church or your religious sect, the truth is, we are all worthy. That's the ultimate secret. Pay attention to your feelings and let it guide you. Is it going to be hard dealing with your truth? Hell yes! But perhaps it will be the path of the greatest possibility for your ultimate happiness and perhaps health. But hiding in the end doesn't help you. As I described, it can cause a whole shitload of problems. As Dr. Siegel wrote in his book, your life is stored in your body. Do not live a role. Live an authentic life. 
Today, I'll be speaking to my friend, Dr. Barry Armstrong, who is a pediatrician at Kaiser Permanente San Jose Medical Center in California. In his past, he had worked in a medical clinic in India and also later consulted for the medical clinic. I know that Barry is an amazing and kind doctor, but he is not only a beacon of light for his patients and their families, but also a beacon of light for doctors who are secretly suffering. Hello, Barry, and welcome to the podcast, and I am so honored to have you here today. Thank you, Michelle. It's wonderful to be here, and I'm enjoying your backyard and your studio and nature. (laughs) (laughs) It's wonderful. So thank you uh, for coming here today, and uh, you know, I wanted to talk about your life and how you're such a strong light for um, people as well as our peers, doctors. If I may ask you, what in your past has shaped you to be the person that you are today? That's a, a really great question, and I think there are so many ways to answer that question. I would say that uh, part of my life was definitely shaped by my childhood, and um, how I responded to the events and the you know upbringing that I had, and um, so that more took place in my adult years. Um, in in my childhood, I grew up in a small town in Northern California called Weaverville, and that's a rural town in the mountains, and it's a beautiful um, setting with mountains around and evergreen trees, pine trees, and fir trees, and um, being able to um, go outside whenever I wanted was um, a wonderful thing. I used to climb trees when I was a kid, and i go as high as I could and feel the wind blowing the tree, and it was wonderful. And I think having the outdoors was a real healing element uh, for me. And I grew up in in a family of five children and a mom and a dad. And my dad was a dentist in this small town. There were some challenges um, in the family. And um, later on, I realized that um, my dad had uh, alcohol issues. And um, I think that the, How old were you when you realized that? Uh, I wasn't. And it was after college that I realized that. So I wasn't very aware of that um, as a young child. And I think our whole family, all seven of us, were in denial of that diagnosis. Yeah, I think when you see it every single day, you know, you may not actually see it because you're so used to it. And then I think when we grow older and we see how others may or may not act, we see it more, but I think it's sometimes things that are not visible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, when I faced my own issues in life, um, challenges with things like depression, I started digging in a little bit deeper at some of the traumas that I'd experienced in childhood and early life. I came to be much clearer about the pathology in my family. And I think my adult life, part of that has been centered on healing from those, you know, childhood traumas. And as a pediatrician, I'm very um, sensitive to those issues in childhood that can really upset 
a family and a child. Do you feel like you can recognize it in a child when you see, that you see? I think that I'm a little bit, maybe, I think I have some intuition around it, and I do try to address it. I'm very happy that we do the ACEs, you know, um, questionnaire, with his, which is adverse childhood events that we never used to do. And what are some of the questions for ACEs, Barry? Um, there is, it focuses on, like, one would be, was there a divorce or separation in the family? Another would be, is there any history of, of violence in the family? Is there any drug abuse or alcohol abuse in the family? Safety issues, both physical and um, emotional issues are covered in that questionnaire. And out of, how, out of those questions, how many would be considered concerning if the answer is yes? Well, we, in our department, we used to say three were, were concerning, but they've raised that to four. But to me, any positive is concerning, and it's something that you'd want to follow up on and discuss. So if there's a separation or a divorce, you just want to know where the child is at with both his biological parents. I agree, because I think depending on that child, you don't know how that child will be affected, whether or not the answer, you know, the score is four or one. Yeah. You know, with what they carry. Exactly. And you have to to know more and, and ask the questions. Definitely. Barry, so at what point in your life did you realize you were suffering from depression? Well, that was much later. It was... Um, you know, I knew I went through like times where things were really hard and even felt dark, but I didn't label it as depression because I don't I, I don't think I was aware of even that as a diagnosis. It wasn't until maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And so when I was middle-aged actually that I realized that I was dealing with that. And how long do you think you were maybe how long do you think you were experiencing symptoms before the realization? Oh, I think I experienced, you know, my kind of depression was like going through periods of struggle and um, pain and darkness. And sometimes I experienced those. Sometimes those would last for several years, and, and sometimes I wouldn't. Um, so it was kind of episodic with me. Um, but I was aware that I think even in my teens and early 20s, um, I experienced, especially around relationships, challenges with relationships, how to process relationships. It was really challenging for me. Exactly, because I think relationships is actually a process in itself. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> hopefully it, to it, work out too. It, it is, and and I think ideally a healthy, you know, uh, way of of doing that would be um, being able to reflect and learn and uh, come out the other side a, a better, wiser person. Um, whereas for myself, I would um, I would actually go down and and be sad and. Um, withdrawn for, yeah, I know that for one of those episodes, it was several years. That you, and, you were and in doubt. I, I, I don't think that's healthy. And um, it's Why a, do you think that happened, that you, for several years you yeah, went down like that? Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, 
I think it's for me um, a bit of a mystery because I think it's because um, I'm I have some wiring set that way, and it's probably genetic. I have, especially on my father's side, there's a long history of um, depression. I have a great grandfather who uh, committed suicide, and of course, I've mentioned my father. I think he deals with mental illness, and um, I think it runs strongly in that side. So it could be genetic, a predisposition, and I mean, it's just hard when you have depression to understand why you have depression. But I think it's important to recognize that it's an illness and an illness that we, many of us have, regardless of whether we are um, physicians or non-physicians. I think, you know, it's important to recognize that physicians, like the rest of the population, We're are human, human beings, right? And um, so we need to to acknowledge that we suffer the same illness as, as everyone else. And to me, I, I, I think there's a huge stigma around depression. And one of my goals is, um, and thank God I have friends who have either experienced mental illness or have loved ones who experienced mental illness. And they, they've been able to, um, by having those friends, I've been able to normalize this as a part of human, you know, humanness. Experience. Yeah, human experience. Yeah. So there's such a stigma around it. There was such a stigma in my own family around depression. Like when I first went to a counselor, I was told by my mom that, oh, no, you won't be able to go in the army um, because you have a mental health issue. And it's amazing because it was so prevalent, you know, like even in your own family. Yeah, there was a, I mean, I don't think she was even aware. It was just so tamped down that still there are people in my family who would not admit that my father has uh, alcoholism um, or that there's mental illness in, in the family. The denial. Yeah, it's it's a strong denial. So, And I think it's really true. So many of us experience depression or even feelings of anxiety, but so many of us hide it. And I think there's many of us that still, even in our like modern-day culture, where we deny it. And I think it's such a shame because it's not something uncommon. The truth is, in working in primary care, I realize it's something actually so common that it's a shame that we're not honest about it. And I totally agree with, you know, you recognizing your symptoms, you know, and not denying it. Can you actually begin to do something about it? Exactly. I think um, it's it's one of the things, it's a process to take ownership of... uh, of your medical and, and psychological history. And I think it's it's really important as a good as a good physician to, to, to take ownership of it and to be part of that group that wants to get rid of stigma around mental illness. And so um, I'm one of those who is is part of that movement. And that's why I think you're one of the strongest people I know. <laughs> But Barry, don't you think when you take ownership, there's a phase when it hurts really, really bad? 
almost, you know. It is challenging. I think it's challenging and it it's a process and I don't think I could have done it like a light switch where, okay, I'm not going to hide this anymore because there there is um, there is concern for backlash. There, you know, we live in a culture that um, stigmatizes again um, mental illness and um, judges people about it. But like I said, through the support, being connected to friends like you, um, and you know my other friends who um, we we have mutual friends who, you know, are okay with whoever you are. And, and that's the kind of friends I cultivate now. <laughs> and I think that's the life that you created for yourself, Barry. I think because the way I see you is that because you've, you know, taken care of yourself and, you know, whatever it was, you know, how painful it was, you shine like a light. And that's why I was attracted to you, kind of like a fly moving to a light, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really feel like that's what you are in your life. Thank and you, that's Michelle. why I respect you. I, do, I, I personally don't see it that way, but I think, you know, we all, who, all of us who are on a healing path, and uh, I mean that as a personal healing path, I feel that we, if we do cultivate ourselves and we can cultivate ourselves through different things. We were talking about exercise before. That's one way that I cleanse myself. Meditation, nature, hiking in the woods, being around butterflies like, <laughs> um, like I see in your backyard. And I see St. Francis too. <laughs> Love of nature. <laughs> I was wondering where he was, but there he is. Yeah, I think when we develop a discipline or a routine to heal ourselves, we're going to be attracted to other people who are doing that process too. And it's, it's so wonderful to be connected with a group of people who, who want to be healers and heal themselves. And I don't think we can be true healers as physicians unless we take that path of healing ourselves. Exactly. I think like showing kindness to ourselves so that we have kind of like a supply of energy in a way to shine that light out, whatever process that may entail. But Barry, if I may ask you, I guess when you realize how you were feeling or that point in your, those points in your life, do you feel like it correlated with perhaps your, the, your idea of your self-worth? I've always been challenged with self-worth issues because of my childhood, I'm sure, because, you know, growing up in a, a, a household where you're told you're stupid and things like that and being like humor being at the cost of another person. Um, so you were always, you were belittled a lot when a you lot, were growing yeah, up. A lot, yeah, a lot. By so, your parents? So, yeah, especially, especially by, by my dad. And, and then it becomes a culture within the family. All, everyone picks up on that and they realize that it's safe to do belittling behaviors. So that's a, a constant thing that I face. Like there is like tracks in my brain, I believe, that um, develop because of that. And the only way I've found to overcome that is 
through self-compassion and, and love towards self. And I, it's only been recent that I've been able to um, develop a practice around that. And it, it's just so, um, so liberating and um, so um, such, it's the right thing for me to, to have that practice going on and cultivating that practice. I'm so Very. glad I discovered that. Hearing that makes me so angry and so sad because seeing you, I think that's so far from the truth in terms of someone calling you stupid. How can they say such an untruth like that and then affect your life? Like, you know, It's interesting. Um, I worked with a person at, at work. We'd been doing um, some series on social justice and she and I, she's the head of our inclusion project at work and so I've been working with her and another fellow who's um, African-American and myself, and we're bringing conversations and dialogues to our colleagues in each department. And one of the things she said early on to me, she wrote me and she said, or she presented me, um, we introduce each other during mm -hmm. these programs, and she said, you know, Dr. Armstrong is so smart. And when I heard that, it was just like, oh, my God, I, I just felt so good about that because, you know, um, most of my early life I was told I was not smart. And it, just hearing that and hearing it from you is, um, I really appreciate it. Because it's the truth, <laughs> Dr. Armstrong. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, when you hear this continuously for 18 years, it's kind of, um, it becomes part of you. And so... Um, it does. It's like we absorb it like a sponge. Yeah, and that becomes our identity. And, um, and you know, interestingly enough, we, we, we go to medical school. We go, I got two, three degrees before I went to medical school. And um, I, th I think part of that is just trying to demonstrate to myself that I, oh, I really am smart, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I was a professional student for a long time. It's just so amazing how, you know, I think you're so strong, yet you, your parents, you know, they probably, I wonder if they didn't think of themselves in a high manner to do that to you. No, I don't. I don't think my parents were even conscious. I think my, especially my dad was just trying to survive. And I don't think he really was conscious or aware that he was doing what he was doing. You see, he, his father killed himself, and his father um, had big issues, big mental health issues. And, you know, my dad mentioned that um, his father would show him the rope he was going to hang himself with. So can you imagine that the trauma that he went through? I really think that um, probably my dad and mom did the best they could with what they had. With what they knew, probably. With what they knew, But yeah. in the end, it really wasn't it, the it, best. I mean, yeah. I mean, as far as parenting goes, um, it, it, was, it was pretty rough for all of us in the family. And so, you know, finding refuge in nature and, and getting out of the house and playing sports and all these things were... And finding other father figures in my life um, were all very valuable for me. I think that's the mercy of life. Like, even if we grow up in a certain family, 
like there may be others, you know, or even nature where you can feel that love, even if it doesn't come from your family. And the way you describe your dad, I kind of wonder if he was projecting onto you as well as his other children, probably how he felt about himself. No, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure that he, he went through his own big, big challenges. And um, I mean, it's, it's, if we don't metabolize those, and I think to some extent he tried to metabolize those. He read a lot. And he was interested in philosophy and music and things like that. I actually got a lot from my dad in that way. Um, The love of learning? The love of learning, the love of music, the love of the outdoors. He loved the outdoors. So it's not one way, you know. It's not just uh, black and white there. Um, But as a parent, as a nurturing parent, and there were even elements where he did, you know, like when I was sick to my stomach or vomiting, he was the one who would hold my head and put his hand on my back very gently and lovingly and care for me so it's not black and white and but definitely there there were you know areas of pathology in the family and um to this day i don't think he recognizes that and maybe it's like you know i think i really believe that humanity is not bad i think we're born good you know but then i i think we forget that we're good and that we make the wrong choices sometimes. Yeah. And maybe after going through years and years and years of wrong choices, perhaps, or not the best choices, it's kind of hard to recognize the truth. But I think that's also the beauty of life. You can choose your truth. You can make your truth. It's never too late if you choose. Will it be hard? Hell yes. But it's possible. And I think for you... You've chosen your truth. You've chosen your path. You didn't become him or your grandfather. You decided to become something totally different, like a butterfly. I think that's the beauty of it. So you mentioned butterfly, and um, which to me symbolizes beauty and lightness and openness and incredulity. And I think... 40 years ago, um, if you had mentioned that I, I was like a butterfly, first of all, I don't, uh, right, even now, I don't consider myself a butterfly. I consider myself a person on the path of development and learning, and, and that's what, what I consider. And maybe it looks shows up outside as a butterfly. But I think just talking about this um, as beauty it would not have even been, I wouldn't have been able to talk about this or entertain um, the past um, like we're doing today. Because first of all, if you had said you're a butterfly and when I was in my 20s, I would have like, she doesn't know the, what the <laughs> fuck she's talking about. She doesn't know me. And I would have been in total denial because I would have been in that place of, um, maybe my father or, or other people who are suffering where they, they just don't um, recognize their humanity and they're only a ball of pain and, and they feel like they're, 
they create suffering to themselves and suffering to the world around them. And I, I, I had a very, very low self-worth at that time. And I think that's a period like, like 20, 40 years ago. I think that's still a period where the truth really, really hurts. Sometimes I think when the truth hurts that badly, it's like hard to look at it. It's hard to like kind of look at it from a different point of view. Yeah, I was totally wrapped up in myself and my own suffering and couldn't step outside of that. Whereas today, I feel like I can step outside of that. I can have perspective. You know, thankfully, I've created a lot of tools that I've worked with to to do that. Um, it's it's a, just a long, long practice that one engages in. And perhaps, Barry, and I wanted to hear more about your tools, but perhaps when it's like really bad, it's kind of like we go on survival mode. You're just, it's like if there's no one to clearly like get you out of that situation, it's kind of like we have to like survive our childhood, but we don't realize that it's a survival mode. We think that we think that's what is. But then when you get out of it, out of that area, out of you know where you had grown up, can you see it in more detail that, wow, that was kind of fucked up, you know, kind of thing. And I think that's when we can begin to kind of reflect on it. And I think, like you're saying, like, I think it's important to not forget it. Don't carry it and never not let it go. But I think we're meant to learn from it and see what lessons it can provide for us in our life. Or do you want to live that way? Or do you want to look for another way? And I think that's what I see about you. There were open doors in front of you or even the way you described nature or other father figures in your life that your dad could not have provided you 100% of the time. There were other, like, signs of mercy. Definitely, definitely. And I, I don't, you know, I wasn't always aware about those doors, but I do believe they appeared and I walked through them and, and, and I may not have been aware of them. I think in time, though, one... If we walk on this path of healing, we become more aware of those doors. And we are at a level where we can choose rather than just kind of groping around in the dark. Um, And and that takes time. It takes time. And thank God, I do believe, you mentioned something. I do believe in this universe there is grace and there is love. And if we turn ourselves to that, um, those doors will be more apparent. You know, I'm just grateful to be able to see and recognize um, that there is that love and grace in the universe. I often think, Michelle, um, about people who who are really, really suffering deeply now. And, and you know right now that there's a lot of suffering um, and I would say in physicians, that may be magnified several fold, especially during this time. Exactly. And I, I, I'm aware of that um, because I work in physician well-being at our medical center. The persona that we're supposed to be strong or I, the word that I hate, be a hero. I hate that word. Yeah, because that boxes us in to not necessarily being able to be human and have chinks or, you know, cracks in us. Exactly. And, and we wh- need to be able to allow those cracks to be. And, you know, we were earlier talking about kintsugi, which is the Japanese pottery. Japanese pottery that's broken and then put back together with gold lacquer 
and it becomes more beautiful after it's put back and together. It's worth more. <laughs> and it is worth more. Um, and that's what I think human beings have the opportunity of doing. To evolve. Exactly. And, and to grow. Yes. And that's not and to the be end. beautiful. And, you know, the reason what you were mentioning about physicians, I think there is a persona that we're supposed to be strong. But the, the, the truth is we feel like shit, too. Sometimes, you know, a lot of times our work is very stressful and we're working through the pandemic. The other truth is that we're afraid. I know a lot of doctors who are afraid. Definitely. But we pretend to be strong. And I really believe when what we portray on the outside doesn't correlate with how we feel on the inside, that's where discord happens. That doesn't mean things are going to be okay. That means that there's an imbalance. And we, I think we need to feel like the outside that we want to portray. And perhaps in order to get there, we need to portray the fact that we feel like shit, to be honest about it. So I, that I we, can, we can acknowledge it and learn from it and hopefully become better. And Barry, if I may ask you, what were some of the tools for you to not continue the life of the words that you're parents said to you but to create something for you like what were your tools i'm going to get to that <laughs> but before i do i want to i want to hold this piece about physicians and their vulnerability if you might um, allow me our center and and you were your part you were part of that was one of the first to face covid and it was an intense an intense process mm -hmm. in march and april of this year and truly, we had um, physicians, and we still have physicians who were traumatized by this. Uh, I remember talking to one anesthesiologist who um, he would intubate people because they were in respiratory failure, one after another, and not having any family members around to be with them in their last hours. He would go home and cry at night. His family didn't know what was wrong. Um, he, he had a hard time talking about this. Like so many of us do, we have a hard time talking about the traumas of our work with our family. There are so many stories like this, Michelle, and, and people in our, our profession now are having issues with substance abuse and alcohol to try and Mitigate. deal with it, yeah. But it never does. No, you know? it doesn't. It doesn't. So I just want to make sure that people in your listening audience do understand that this is a really, really rough time for all of us. And I would say especially for our physicians who are going, they're at the front lines of this pandemic. And, and the upsetting thing is it, it didn't have to be this way. And on the positive side, we as a medical group at our center have been doing a lot to help create a space where physicians can come and talk about the challenges and the traumas they're going through. So we have these RISE groups, um, resilience and stressful events that we do twice a week. And we have a very, very um, good EAP uh, counselor who's present at those and has reached out to other physicians. And, and I'm we'll glad you bring this up, Barry, because I feel like even from the beginning of our training, like studying so much or residency, the pain of residency and working then, you know, it was like over 90-hour shifts 
hours per week is kind of like a period where, you know, we struggle so much, but we're supposed to look strong. We're supposed to look awake. Even when we're so tired and hurting, you're not supposed to say anything. And I feel like we carry that culture even into our work where we see so much and sometimes we recognize the humanity in our patients. And a lot of people, doctors, don't know what to do with that. We carry that as a sponge, that hurt, that stress, that pain. And a lot of us still don't know how to release it. Yeah, We're no different than anyone else. No. This is what humanity and if, experiences. If we don't release it, it's going to cause illness in us. We need to be able to share um, these experiences with each other. Before those feelings perhaps festers into something else that we may or may not want, you depression, know, like depression, anxiety, illness. addiction, things like that, illness, high blood pressure, Or, you exactly. know, burning a hole through your stomach, ulcer, you know, or cancer. Yeah, exactly. I think it's important to really recognize how you feel. I agree. Yeah, I, I would just add, That it's you legitimate. Know, that physicians have the highest suicide rate among any professionals. And that just isn't a, a testament to how much we don't take care of ourselves exactly. or how ironic. metabolize what we're going through. We go into a field to be healers, yet we're we the become, group that we become most the, kill the ourselves. Victim, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just so <laughs> sad. And I think like something that you brought up before, in order to help someone else, in order to be a light for someone else, you have to be a light for yourself in order to shine that out. And I think we're all trying to figure out why we're here on Earth. I think we're all trying to find out our reason. But I think in order to find that reason, you have to take care of yourself. You have to shine that love on yourself so that you realize your reason. And sometimes realizing that reason is really, really painful. But that's the mercy of life. It's painful now, but your rainbow is waiting. We all have our own rainbows, you know, and you can change your rainbow in the future, but life is not that unmerciful. Yeah, and I think the challenge is when someone's in a deep amount of pain, them being able to see that there is a door and on the other side there is light or a rainbow or a butterfly or, you know, something positive. And when you're in the depth of despair, being able to see that. For me, that's always been the challenge when, when you know, with depression and, and things like that. Um, so I think, yeah, now is the time to talk about the tools. But can I ask you, do you think anyone saw you? Do you think anyone saw how depressed or sad you were? Was there anyone in your life that saw that or felt it? I think so. Um, I, I think my mom knew that. Um, I did go home for a while. How old were you when you went home? I was home? After, it was after my um, degree in Asian studies. So after your college degree? Yeah. But it, I, I don't think it was um, helpful to go back home. It was actually... So I actually... Um, I, I went out into the world and explored and went to Alaska and then went back to school. School was a very safe place for me. Um, As is, I think, for a lot of kids. Yeah, they, you know, they call it alma mater, and mater is mother. 
And um, so I didn't it's, know that. Actually. Yeah, it's wow. it's it's uh, it can be very protective and um, productive as well. I learned so much from a lot of my professors, and I'm talking about not academic things, but life. One of my professors here at UCSC, Frank Andrews, was a chemist, but he uh, he he taught a course in problem solving which was really basically going inwards and writing um, writing journals about whatever is up for you. And I took his class, that class, twice. And it was, <laughs> because you loved it? Because it was so needed. It was mm-hmm. just what I needed. And, um, you know, he That's was... That's pretty amazing. He, I never he, heard he, of... He was one of my father figures. <laughs> I never heard of anyone taking a class twice, the same class. Yeah, well... I did. I don't know if I got credit twice for it. But. <laughs> he was one of your father figures? Yeah. Yeah, he was a guide and a mentor. I, I have many, though. Yeah. I think we all have the capacity to touch another's life, like Frank Andrews on your life. Yeah, well, he would definitely recognize that I was in a difficult place, and he was there for me. That kindness. Yeah. You know, you don't know how far it goes, But for that person who you've touched, that's a seed that they carry, that they grow. I think that's the beauty about life. Yeah. So I consider people like that, you know, angels in this world. And fortunately, um, I've had many. Do you feel like they saved you or or they helped to save you? I I don't. use the word save because I think we actually save ourselves. I agree. Again, I, I would yes. say we walk, we see a door and we walk through it because there's something um, that we can nourish ourselves with. And so we drink that water, that water of nourishment, and that may be offered by friends or, or mentors. And the, the opposite can happen too if we um, engage in, with people who have negative habits, we can also go through doors that that are not healthy for us. So Our choices matter. Choices really matter. And I think if that's not the kind of life one wants to live, then I think we really have to think about it, you know? Because I think our choices, even if at that moment, that one step doesn't feel like much, perhaps it's like a building block for our house. If that's not the house that you want to build for your future that you look forward to, then perhaps don't don't go there. Yeah. Have a sturdy block, not one that's going to crack in half and unfold your whole home that you're building. And I think you had mentioned this before, like, you know, when you were younger, the path that you followed, you didn't know that was a path, but it's kind of like we take steps in our lives and we don't realize that those steps accumulate Until after some time and you look back and you're like, holy shit, I've come this far. I think that's amazing if we were able to do that. But I also don't think we pat ourselves on the back enough to be like, good job, Barry. Good job, Michelle. You fucking didn't give up. (laughs) Do you know it's like so important? Sometimes it is like a war, you know, Um, the war within. And sometimes... I think it's it is like surfing a wave. Sometimes you really have to bite into the wave and be kind of uh, assertive, um, which is something I never kind of recognized as a young person. 
And sometimes you have to be soft and kind, and um, and it's it's it is definitely like and um, respect that moment, whatever that moment is. Yes, you know? and that's that's the I think one of the big challenges is how to navigate those those things, like when to be um, kind of shake yourself and say, okay, yeah. this is not okay what's in front of me right now and I need to stand up and get to the gym or get on the exercise bike versus uh, that loving kindness. There's there's two sides of that coin, in my opinion. Like respecting the emotions that you feel, you know, like whatever that emotion is. It's like if you're angry, be angry, hopefully in a socially acceptable manner, <laughs> you know, but like be angry, feel it. If you're sad, I, it, you know? I, I totally agree with that. And um, I think for so much of my life, and, and I think for many of us, we have um, we have been assaulted either physically or emotionally um, for so many of us. And that, uh, for me, I believe I didn't deal with that well as a child. And and. You know, how could we expect to deal with it well as a child? So I think... And you're still a child, you know, like... Yeah. As a child, you didn't do that to yourself. We put no, so much we, blame on ourselves. We didn't, on we ourselves. didn't have a choice yeah. then. They did we needed to, to survive, right? Yeah. But um, as I processed through, yes, intense anger, um, anguish, hatred, intense feelings do come up. And I agree with you, Michelle. We have... We have to allow for those. Um, if we keep pushing those aside, we won't heal. And sometimes so. that's what I see. I think a lot of people don't realize how common depression is. That I, Sometimes I wonder if that's the more common than the uncommon. Or even abuse. Abuse in our childhood. It's just so common. It's so sad to fathom, actually. And we may not really know the real numbers because we hide it so much. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, there's also a path that a lot of people follow, you know, they grow up a certain way and whatever happened to them, that it's not stopped, that they carry it. And then they, that victim ends up doing it to themselves. That's the irony of it. You were abused, but then you live this life where you continue the abuse and you do it to yourself. Because that's what we're taught and that's what we know. And the, and we know that people who continue, you know, as adults to, who, who are abused will continue the behavior of abuse. We know that through, through studies. And, and so I think the approach there is really, I mean, we oftentimes will put those people in a cell and lock them up. And to me, that's furthering the abuse. And, and so um, all of us need to be able to process our childhood events, traumatic events. And then even as an adult, if we've abused others, we have to be able to be open and cared for. And that's really tough because most people do just want to lock us up or, or, or kill us or something like that. And that, to me, is totally skewed, and, and it's one of the big failures of our society. It is. We're adding to the problem. We're adding to we the trauma. We are no different. Yes. So and, very... and there are cultures that, that can do it and do do it. And um, I think we really need to learn to study those cultures and learn um, healing. 
How did you do it, Barry? Well, I'm still doing it, Michelle. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I think I'll still be doing it till I die. And some of the things that have worked for me, well, one of them was going to India. Um, one of my friends in medical school showed me a book. His teacher um, created a book on yoga. Mm-hmm. And um, I borrowed the book. And at the back of the book, there was this commentary about all the proceeds of the book were going to a, an orphanage in India. And um, I wasn't, you know, that's what hit me, not the yoga in the book, but that piece. And I said, I really want to go to that place. Um, to the orphanage? Yeah, I want to go there and I want to serve. So, um I had done a year of family practice, and then I wanted to take a break and go to the the orphanage. So I met the founder of the orphanage, who happened to be a a spiritual guide who lived in Santa Cruz County for a long time. His name is um, Baba Haridas. He actually passed away um, about three years ago. But anyway, I went and met him, and um, he was a silent monk, so he, he only wrote on a chalkboard. I went and met him and I said, I'm interested in, you know, going to the orphanage and running the clinic there because my friend Mark, who was the med student, um, had done a rotation there. Mm-hmm. And um, he asked, when do you want to go? And so He wrote I, it down for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm uh, sorry, was this after medical school then? This or? was after medical okay. school and I had finished my first year of residency okay. or my internship. So year. you were a doctor? Yeah, I was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And um, not that I knew what I was doing, but <laughs> I guess I knew, thought I knew what I was doing. And so I went, um, I did go. And I was, my plan was just to stay for a few months and check it out. Um, Michelle, I ended up staying for two years at this place. How did you feel there? Um, it was, I mean, it was like the most formative, like healing Um, time of my life because I was able to set my hours in the clinic and I really balanced it with my kind of own development. So Mm -hmm. I would work from, I'd work from one to five or one to six for six days a week and I'd take one day off. But the, the morning time that, um, I was there. I would. I, I learned to do meditation, and I learned that from one of my neighbors. Um, he, he was living there. Um, who he practiced meditation for most of his life, and I learned to do meditation, and it had a profound effect on me. How long were you meditating for then? At that time, um, I think I meditated for sometimes. Usually an hour and sometimes up to two hours. And, but it was usually an hour. Mm-hmm. But I would do other kind of practices as well. And, you know, like in the what? morning, I, I um, reading spiritual books mm-hmm. was really, really a big part of it for me. So, Indian spiritual books, so things, uh, some of the people like Ramakrishna was a saint there. Um, um, I, I started following Baba Hari Das's teachings while I was there. I would, so I, I used a lot of my time for cultivation of, of um, the inner life. Mm-hmm. 
And um, so that, that started a, a really w- wonderful um, process for me. Did you have faith before you went into before you went to India, or did you believe in faith, or was it in India? I grew up Catholic, and um, I was an altar boy when I was a kid, and I did believe in God until a certain point. Um, mm-hmm. I, I lived in Thailand and was exposed to Buddhism. I did hear it when I returned from <clears throat> Thailand. I heard a sermon from one priest who said, there's only one kind of, of Christian um, compassion. And um, to me, you know, I couldn't <laughs> accept that because I'd met people in Thailand and, and Buddhists who showed so much compassion. Wait, to so me. they were saying that only Christians were compassionate then? I think they were saying that there's a, a certain kind of compassion that's Christians Christians mm. only have. That's and, so limiting. And, and for me, I heard it as, you know, yeah, there couldn't be a, a deep kind of compassion by non-Christians. And so um, I started gravitating more towards Buddhism. And um, I don't know if it's a faith. Mm. It's more of a practice, mm. and a, a inner practice. So you had already started that path before you went to India and then India... Yeah, I studied Asian studies at mm-hmm. UC Berkeley before doing pre-med and um, developed an interest in Buddhism at that time. So, and Barry, how long did you stay in India then? I think I was there for, I think I was there for like two years. And then I went back and, and um, after that I wanted to, I worked with children at the, the clinic in India and also the neighboring <clears throat> villagers who were very poor. And I realized that I wanted to be a pediatrician after that experience. And so I I went back and did my training there. Do you feel like helping people there helped you? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, And yet... With the fair balance. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that. Yet I set limits on how much I was giving outwardly and kind of refilled my tank inwardly. And I kind of learned early on that was something I think there was some wisdom inside. In retrospect, I learned how to balance things. Like even in in my college times, I would take like I I, I took a year off to go to study abroad um, several times. And that was just a way to kind of unplug for me and kind of nurture myself. So when things got too intense, um, I would unplug. I feel like in our lives today, like balance is such a scarcity. I don't think we think about it enough. You know, and then sometimes if you like do one thing. I think especially, thing, especially in physicians' lives. Yeah, and there were like people, oh, a person working three jobs, you know, like someone was telling me that they feel really tired. So I asked him, okay, so how much do you work? And he told me he worked three jobs and then really only had four hours a night to sleep. It's like the answer is so obvious and you're coming to a doctor to say that you're tired, but the answer is so obvious, yeah, you know? There's not a pill that can treat that. Exactly. And I feel like balance is such a scarcity, but balance is also a medicine too. Yeah. To like just have some time to think or or that doctor that you mentioned who was working, you know, who's intubating patients like with acute respiratory distress because of COVID. 
if he had some, and we worked so much, if he had some time to perhaps really look at it, understand his feelings, and hopefully have someone to talk to, like that time is part of the medicine, I think, or that process of healing ourselves. And I think we've forgotten that. Our lives are so busy. And I think this is like the strange thing about the pandemic. We're like literally a lot of times like, forced to stay home. There's nothing else to do, you know? <laughs> a lot of us have, have commented on that, um, that I, several people who, you know, I work with uh, this group on Black Lives Matter, and they there's this feeling that the reason there's been an, a new awareness around this, I mean, police have been killing bl- black people for a long time. But at this time, we have time to reflect because we are sheltered in COVID. We're, a, we're not as on the go. Time, the time. to recognize the injustice yes, that's existed exactly. for a long time. And so this has been beneficial. And, and, yeah. and um, I think it's not just the police. It's a lot of people, people in our like, definitely. culture and society. I, and I think people. that's part of, of this yeah. process we're talking about, of self-evolution. We have to recognize that we were born into a culture that's basically racist and that we have all been affected by that. And we have to own that, yes, I have prejudiced and bigoted and racist beliefs myself. And that's the power of humanity, I think. When you recognize it and the ability to do something about it, you know, you could just be like just that singular one dimensional, you know, kind of, I don't know, not to discount animals, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, one way of thinking, but if you recognize it and then you go up to another level, you recognize it and then you do something yeah. about it. You do something different. Make it right. Yeah. I think we all have the capacity to make things right in our own lives, in, our, in someone else's life. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And, and it's, again, owning it. Yeah. Owning that, that dark side of our – we all have a light and a dark. And I think that's just part of being a human being. Learning to balance it, you know? Well, to shine – being able to shine a light into the tunnel of darkness as yes. well. And looking at, okay, you know, like, yeah, I've got some some history there that's really – kind of ugly. Like my own personal family, um, there were some real ugly parts there and that that I kind of swallowed as well. And being able to look at that and say, do I want to be that way? And it's the same thing with those racist ideas that we're all inculcated with because we've had 400 years of being taught racist ideas. It started with enslaving human beings and then went through Jim Crow laws, you know, after the Civil War, and then lynchings and all this, such violence we've been taught and feeling like people of color and black people are less than and can be treated however we want. Instead of respecting a human for who or she is. Yeah, exactly. A human, you know, like a... a soul. And so when we can shine the light in those dark places... I think there is room for healing and room for action. Uh, if we don't shine the light, we, we continue feeling guilty about this when we see it on the news or, mm-hmm. or, and we avoid it. We don't want to deal with it. I agree. Um, it's, it's like just too painful. 
I think the truth is like all of us are capable of good and bad and all of us have both of it. And like no one's like, I mean, I don't know, maybe Buddha or is 100% good, but most of us, you know, like. But I think yeah. before before he went on his path, he, he was the same as the rest of he us. He was human. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's it's our life, our choice to see which path where we're going to go down and what's going to win? Do you want to live a dark life of hatred, jealousy, anger, or do you choose the light, love? And I think if you're you're not really sure, what would make you feel better? I think that's a good way to go. Do you if making is living a life where you're angry and you're hating better for you than living a life where you're filled with love and you see Care Bear Heart? So I think, you know, coming back to back to one of your questions, what tools I've used. One of those tools is appropriate for this conversation. I think surrounding yourself with people who are on the path or who want to look inward Mm -hmm. and heal themselves um, to congregate. They they call, there's a special word for this in, in India. It's called Sangha, the community of meditators or the community of people who want to do introspection and evolve um, their inner life. And so creating that community around you is one of the, for me, it's been one of the tools and being conscious about it. It's been one of the tools that I've used to heal myself. Because when, I mean, when you're around light, light is going to show up within you. And I think that's the power of light. Like if you're surrounded by light and you are a light, it's not like one light plus one light equals two lights. I think we can create infinitely more. It can be more intense. When you love somebody and then you like, you can't really like, if you add up like one love of one child and then love of another child, it's not like two child kind of love, you know, it's, it could be infinitely more. And I think like you say, Surrounding yourself with the people you love and respect or people you admire. I think that's a good way to do it too because maybe when you need help at that moment in your life, because the truth is we all we need help at different moments in our lives. Even if you think you're doing okay, there will be moments when you don't feel like you're doing okay or you feel, you know, but if you have those people around you, Ask them for help. I think we don't ask for help enough or tell them how you feel because those like-minded people may love you and want to help you, but they don't want to, you know, overstep their boundaries. I'm I'm reminded too, when I was quite young, we were talking before the interview about how few friends we had maybe when we were growing up. But, but one of the, the, um, Things that I did instead of having people around me um, because I think I was shy or, you know, and I probably felt different inside um, and wasn't sure how to navigate social situations. So reading books of people who inspired me and reading those books actually helped um, my inner life as well. Knowledge. Create create knowledge, not only intellectual Mm -hmm. knowledge, but inner knowledge. Um, For the soul. Yes. Um, So I think that's another tool that, you know, I used at some point in my life. Um, And I still try to do that. And I think you also mentioned nature, Barry. Yeah. 
I think nature is very, very powerful. You know, you had a difficult childhood, but you described you grew up amongst the mountains. That's true. It's just so grounding, you know, like the truth is like when I feel bad and I go for a walk, I usually don't come back from that walk feeling bad anymore. Yeah. I, I feel the mountains have always been there for me. And there's a magnet um, in the mountains for me because every time I go back to the mountains, I'm at some level healed. Um, it's just like it brings me into a joyful space. Maybe you're becoming a mountain. Maybe we are. <laughs> Maybe like, I hope we so. all are. I hope know? so. If you're... Well, we came from uh, we came from the earth, and I I think this is um, important to recognize that we came from the elements, Michelle. And when I when I reflect on taking a breath, first of all, if I really am aware of the breath, and this is part of meditation, but when you become and you reflect on the breath, you realize that you're breathing in oxygen. And that the oxygen is nourishing your body. And you reflect on where does that oxygen come from? It comes from these trees and these plants. And, and where do the plants come from? The plants come from the earth and the sun and the water. And we're all connected in that. And we're, we came from those elements and we're going to go back to those elements. So in a sense, you're right. We are going back to the mountain we came from the mountain we came we're going back to the mountain the earth remember the, the earth. mountain the and earth. also like Barry when you take a deep breath during meditation you also let the air in you, you know? bring the air in exactly your and door you, is and, open and your mouth so is open you I, know? <laughs> er, I earlier said I earlier said that I get inspiration or I I actually feel the universe is a source of light. And and that's what I mean. I mean, we're when we breathe in, it is an indirect source of light. Um, all that oxygen, like I said, comes from the trees. The trees come from the, the sun. And so it is, in the truest sense, um, an energy that is, is full of light and full of love and nourishment. And then the out-breath... We're releasing. So it's the light and then coming in, coming in, in the in-breath. And it's, it's the waste, the shit, yeah. the darkness that you're letting out. That you're letting out um, if you want to look at it that way. Because, again, I but will go back. I will, will go. take our shit and make it better. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not plastic. Uh, Thich Nhat yeah. Hanh says yeah. that the lotus comes from the yucky mud in the pond. Or the lake. But there's an evolving that occurs and they take that and make it something useful and beautiful. And I think we have to dwell the negative, the crap, and the darkness. It's light and dark. And we're working with those together all the time. And being able to embrace our darkness. Being able to embrace the waste. And let it out. And and allow it to be. And and choosing what we want to do with it. Exactly. Again, I think we come back to choice a lot. For, for me, allowing is a really strong word. 
choice is a really strong word, or power, I should say powerful word. These words are really powerful to me. I think if we don't allow things to be, including the darkness, that's where, where we go off path. Yeah, and we, we need to suffer too. I, I, you know, I wouldn't trade my life for anyone else's life. I've been informed by my life. And I've been able to use my life to um, to develop myself, and and it's been an opportunity. That's I, how I see it. I think you really explained to us like sometimes we can't control like the shitty experiences in our life, but maybe instead of like letting it drown you, it's something where you you can learn from it, and you can decide your future. You have the capacity of it. We all do. And we're all worthy of a good life. There's so many of us that feel like, oh, that person's worthy of a good life, but not me secretly, you know, because I used to be this, the biggest secret hater of myself, you mm-hmm. know. But the truth is we're all worthy of a wonderful, beautiful life. And it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with all of us. Barry, thank you so much. Thank you, dear friend, for sharing this time with me. You know, thank you for sharing your truth with me, and I, I just wanted to let you know I'm so grateful. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to be here, and uh, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. For more information visit our website, drlostorfound.com.